We're finishing up our uh, four-week series on the difference. Um, Hope you've enjoyed that. We're heading back into Mark, so if you turn to Mark 7 today, we believe Mark can still have a difference in your life. We're in Mark 7, 14 through 23, and we'll be looking at basically what we just heard in the children's sermon. (laughs) Mark seven, fourteen through 23. Reading of God's word. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, Adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The word of the Lord. Amen. Pray once more. Gracious Heavenly Father, we realize we would not understand ourselves, the nature of our heart, without your word. Pray you would give us eyes to see wonderful things out of your word, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, the humility to admit that it's true, as well as cast ourselves upon the cross of Christ, which cleanses our hearts from within. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1971, a professor of psychology named Philip Zimbardo performed an experiment at Stanford University. It was later called the Stanford Experiment and also labeled one of the most unethical experiments um, done. His goal was to figure out what makes people do bad things. So, 70 healthy Young college students and volunteered for this experiment. And he chose 24 of the most, most healthy, normal college students. Twelve of them he randomly, at a flip of a coin, assigned to be uh, prison guards. And they were given a uniform and large mirrored glasses and handcuffs and a club. All to show, uh, give the appearance of having authority and power. The other 12 at random were chosen to be prisoners. And so that Sunday they were picked up uh, by the local uh, police that were in on this. And they were taken to a mock jail constructed at the, in the basement of one of the psychology buildings. And they were given um, a, a, a dress type garment. They were given a, a number that they were going to be referred to instead of their name. They were given a, a chain on their leg. And this was all 
to signify the removal of dignity and the removal of their freedom. They were going to be treated actually as prisoners. And uh, that's about, that Sunday evening, Professor Zimbardo uh, thought that by the end of this day, this experiment's probably going to be a bust. It's not going to reveal anything. The prisoners were laughing at the guards as they gave their commands. But in 24 hours, just 24 hours, things had changed. The more the prisoners uh, mocked or laughed at the commands of the guards, the more the guards stepped up their authority. They stepped up their psychological abuse. In a few short days, they were forcing these prisoners, these fellow college students, in their roles to do awful things, actually. Treating them quite cruelly, psychologically and physically abusing them. And the experiment that was meant to go 14 days had to be shut off at, at the end of six for these normal, healthy college students who were behaving almost barbaric to their fellow classmates. Zimbardo later wrote a book called The Lucifer Effect, What Makes People Do Bad Things. And in 2007, New York Times book reviewer asked him the question, what is the underlying cause of wrongdoing? What's the underlying cause of wrongdoing? And Zimbardo, as a conclusion to his experiment done so much earlier, said this, human behavior is more influenced by things outside of us than inside. Human behavior is more influenced by things outside of us than inside, referring to such things as external circumstances and and our social environments we live in. This reveals that what Jesus is teaching here in Mark 7 is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. To answering the question, why do you and I still do bad things? How do we identify the underlying cause of the bad, of the wrongdoing that we see in us? And it seems the religious leaders thought, just like in the experiment, that human behavior is more influenced by things outside of them than on the inside. And Jesus gives us this universal truth in this passage that our behavior is a product of our heart. Not our circumstances or outside environment. Our main problem is not inside of us, or not outside of us, but inside. Let me tell you why, as we get started, why this is important. Because we talk a lot about gospel transformation around here. This is part of our vision, right? You'd be involved in gospel transformation. You'd be transformed by the gospel. But unless you really understand what Jesus is teaching here about the nature of your sin and your own heart and how to deal with it, you will always try to be transformed by something outside of yourself. By changing the external situation, environment around you, others, your spouse, your co-workers or boss, or you will try by religion, self-effort and outward appearances, not the gospel that we think does transform. So the simple truth, so simple we don't even have slides today is this, the gospel transformation requires an understanding of how our hearts are defiled and how our hearts can be cleansed. Those are our two points, how our hearts are defiled and how they can be cleansed. So let's look first at how we are defiled, how we are defiled. You really have to get the context to to understand where we pick up in this passage. 
verse 2, we see the group of Jews named the Pharisees were questioning Jesus and his disciples for, for eating with defiled hands. Let me explain what was going on. In the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus 11 through 15, we had all these unclean laws. Now, this is basically the gist of it. By coming into contact with disease or death or by having a discharge, um, you were to be considered ritually unclean. And when you were ritually unclean, this meant you could not come into the temple and worship. You were to be separated from the presence of God until you made the appropriate washings, until you were purified and made clean. The significance of what God was teaching was simple. That God is holy and we are not. And to come before him, those who draw near to God must be cleansed and made holy. He said this specifically in Leviticus 15 when he says, You must be set apart, members of Israel, for their impurity, lest they die because of their impurity for rendering unclean my dwelling, which is in their midst. We can kind of understand this, can't we? On a surface scale. I mean, if you walk into a hospital, relationships are are, are affected by uncleanliness. You walk into a hospital and uh, somebody's just has this hacking cough, you know, and, and they're just hacking and, you know, seem to be really sick and their face is showing it. Um, you don't naturally kind of want to go over and sit by them, right? Um, you kind of keep your distance. If you're on a train or in a really small room with the same things going on or maybe somebody has bad body odor or smells really bad, it doesn't, you know, just kind of draw you into relationship. <laughs> the idea is this, as one said, What dirt does to the body, so our moral filth does to our soul. What dirt does to the body, so sin does to our soul, and it repulses God. So although Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees on the source of our defilement, he agreed with them that we are all defiled and therefore must be cleansed in order to draw near to God. Now note here on this is I think it's, I think we struggle with seeing this moral defilement. Um, Jerry Bridges wrote a, a great book called Respectable Sins. Um, chapter 2, he titled The Disappearance of Sin. He said this, The whole idea of sin has virtually disappeared from our culture and many churches as well. The concept of sin is being accommodated or softened to fit secular sensibilities. He goes on to point out how most of us have our, what we, he calls, respectable sins. The subtle inward sins that we tend to just tolerate. We minimize, we justify very easily while we condemn others for their major outward ones. We see this in our culture. You have one group who does so well at caring for the poor, and fighting against injustice, racism. But they easily overlook sexual immorality and give a lot of liberality there. On the other side, you have another group that so well at defending the truth and the sanctity of marriage and the rights of the unborn, but they could tend to overlook greed, overlook social justice. We as Christians tend to do the same thing, and maybe you did it as we read through this passage in verse 21 and 22. 
You start off seeing adultery, sexual morality, theft, murder. You start to think, okay, um, you know, yeah, Jesus, you tell them. (laughs) Go after them. And then you kind of skin right over the other ones, envy, slander, and pride. Okay, yeah. And we look at others who are doing the worst unacceptable, disrespectable sins, and we think they're the ones who are defiled. The reality, though, is in Scripture that we all flow from the same stream of Adam. The Bible says that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death came to all men because why? Because all sinned. So we stand in the presence of God. The reality is as defiled, as unclean. But one of the main points of this passage is from where this defilement comes from. See, the Pharisees misunderstood this. They thought that one becomes defiled from the outside in. That defilement is is something that happens from the outside in. Eating animals that are unclean. That defiles you. By getting too close to someone who has a disease or is sick, you become defiled. By associating with sinners, adulterers, that's how you become defiled. Eating with unwashed hands that have been in the marketplace, handling secular meat, even idols. That's how you become defiled. And it's a good picture of how religion works in general. My family grew up in, uh, my mom's side grew up in Mississippi. And uh, they had, it was a small Baptist uh, uh, culture. My grandmother played the organ for a Baptist church for 65 years. And, um, and my mom would always tell me that uh, as she grew up, they never were allowed to play with face cards, right? You know, just regular playing cards. Why? It's associated with playing, with, with gambling, right? So you avoid the cards. Uh, the funny thing about that was, though, throughout our family history, they always were, were able to play Rook, right? I mean, Rook, they don't use that for gambling, so that's okay. Um, so that's remained in our family. And it's an extreme example, but... It's preached in many a church throughout the ages that defilement is what comes from the outside. From things in the world like cards, like drinking a certain substance, like dancing, like listening to certain types of music or watching certain types of movies. That's what defiles you. It's something outside of us. And Jesus teaches something very different here. Verse 15, he says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 20 and 21, he says, it is from within, out of the heart, that a man, that we are defiled and made unclean. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The the mind thinks, the hands and feet do. I titled the sermon, um, Where Did That Thought Come From? You know what I meant by that? Did you have a thought this week? Maybe you were with your family or maybe you were by yourself or in school or at work. and, And something comes in your head, you're like, What in the world, where in the world did that thought come from? I I mean, that's not who I really am. 
Jesus says, that is who you really are, and it came directly from your heart. I was at a conference one time where a pastor gave an illustration of this. His name was Paul Tripp. And uh, he had a water bottle that was half full, and he took off the top, and, and uh, he started shaking it violently like this, and water started spewing out of the top. And he said, why did water come out of the water bottle? I was like, okay, Captain Obvious, like, <laughs> you shook the bottle. <laughs> he said, water came out of the water bottle because there's water in it. It's like, all right, that's tricky. <laughs> but you know what he was saying? We are not defiled because of our social environment or external circumstances. It is because... Each of our hearts here today is deceitful and desperately sick. We are defiled. It means we're not sinners because we sin, because we're born good and then we start sinning. We're sinners because we're born with a defiled heart. Sin comes out of our heart. This is why C.S. Lewis once said this. He says, Surely what a man does when he is taken off guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. Listen to that. The suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always in, in the cellar, but if you go in shouting noisily, then they would have taken cover before you switch on the light. The best evidence for what your heart is and what's going on in your heart, what your heart is really like, is not what you act like when, you're, when you walk into church this morning. It's not what you're like when you're in front of a boss that you're trying to impress or on a first date. We so easily disguise the truth in those situations. If you want to see what's really in your heart, think about the last time that you were taken off guard. Maybe the last time you suffered. Or we're in a high-pressured situation. Or maybe in heavy traffic. Think about the last time maybe you were out of money or failed the test that you really needed to pass or when somebody really disappointed you, maybe even in your marriage. What came out of your heart then? Here our hearts likely overflowed things we did not like and we were unable to disguise it. And Jesus says in another place, what overflowed was out of your treasure in your heart. Your heart just simply overflows what it treasures. So therefore, in, when we read through this list in 21 and 22, this makes sense. If you easily overflow jealousy, if you are so aware sometimes of what others have and you don't have in your heart, you see coveting, it's probably because you treasure what you're treasuring are things in the world. That's your treasure. Or if you're easily angered or so defensive when people criticize you or challenge you, it's probably because in your heart you're treasuring your reputation. Your heart's full of pride. If you are tempted to do whatever it takes at work 
to climb the ladder, even at the possibly sacrificing your family. It's probably because what you treasure inside is success and greed. If you're tempted to treat people as objects and cannot get lustful thoughts out of your mind, it's probably because in your heart you treasure sensuality and sexual morality, perversion in your heart. And what are we to do about this? Here in the text, I think it's, it just says, stop hiding. Start being honest. In verse 23, just to confess, all these evil things come from within me. And they defile me. What is the underlying cause of wrongdoing? Professor asks. It's my heart. My behavior is, the, is influenced by things inside of me. I was talking with a good friend recently about sin and about our own. We were confessing some things to one another and he made this comment that just, it just struck me. It's so simple, but I think we realize it. He says, it's amazing how simple confession of sin removes the power of sin. Because when it's hiding, it gains power. And confessing and revealing it, there is power over our ongoing sin. I love how much children get this sometimes. They're so honest (laughs) sometimes. Um, I uh, went and picked Avery up at the park. She was with Miriam uh, a couple weeks ago and Miriam mentioned to me she hasn't been very nice in the last couple hours. And so Avery gets in the car and I say, Avery, um, what's going on? And she said, "Uh, I was mean. I've been pretty mean to mommy. Oh, okay. Why were you mean to mommy, Avery? She responded. She kind of thought, said, because I wanted to be mean to mommy. I was like, thank you for your honesty. I mean, it's like, if it was me, I'd be like, well, because she didn't remove my little things off the edge of my pimento cheese sandwich. Or, you know, my, my uh, you don't eat pimento cheese here. That's, uh, my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I mean, I, seriously, yeah, what made me mad? Well, it's because she said this. It's because he did this, right? My natural re- response is meanness comes out of me as a product of my environment. It's a product of what my wife did. It's a product of how my boss treated me. Paul Tripp, who I mentioned earlier, once said this. He says, uh, sometimes, you know, when we hurt somebody, we say something like, uh, I, I'm sorry I didn't mean that. He said, it'd be much more biblical if we said something like, please forgive me for saying exactly what I meant to. <laughs> what would it look like if UPC came to be the first one, the first church, though, to admit that we are defiled? What would it do to our community if we were the ones who said we're the problem, like we're defiled in our hearts? If somebody feeling so defiled came off the street and came in here into a context that we are the first ones to raise our hands when we confess our sins, this is not just our liturgy, but this is in my heart. And that you meant that before your family and how you live this week. And when you say something like that and confess your sins, like, this is not just something I'm saying, honey. I mean this. I am, this is what you saw was out of the overflow of my heart, and I'm sorry. We are defiled at a heart level. 
The question is then, how can we be cleansed? How can we be cleansed? And let me just stop and acknowledge uh, that for some of you, this concept might be pretty new. Um, it may be pretty different teaching. I mean, you may have come in today uh, saying, what I need from church this morning is a good word of encouragement, you know, a little uplifting, a little devotional type thing. And now here this guy up in front is telling me I need to believe I'm defiled and God is repulsed. So inspirational. But Jesus was trying to teach them here uh, then and us now that it matters what you believe about your heart condition. See, if you believe that you were born a good person and the problem is outside of you, then your hope for real transformation, your hope for being clean will always be outside of you. Your hope will be that they will change. He or she will change. That that will change. And that's how I will be clean. And that's how I will become a better person and be transformed. See, even though we suppress it, everyone innately knows that we have a heart problem. We're seeking to be cleansed and become acceptable to God. Even if you're not religious, you do this. Right? I mean, it's like Professor Lombardo said. I mean, changing your environment, putting yourself in the right social context, that's an attempt to be clean, become a good person. I have several non-Christian friends, even agnostic, and it's amazing how much they have this passion to be a good person on the inside of them, which I would label to have a clean heart. Others try to clean their heart just by distraction. I'm going to not think about it. I'm just, I'm just going to put it out. I'm going to fill myself with with work in the world, accumulate stuff and never think about it. Religion is another way we try to cleanse ourselves. Buddhism offers the opportunity to achieve nirvana through the eightfold path, including uh, things like right speech and action and meditation. Islam gives you the um, five pillars, ritual, prayer, and fasting, and tithing, and going to Mecca. Eastern Orthodoxy has... A celebration called Epiphany. Uh, remember, I used to have a picture to remind me how easy it is to do this in my room. And it was a picture of a man going downstairs into um, a frozen river, ice about this thick, and they'd cut out a part of a cross. And it had, just had a caption on it that said, um, this will wash away my sins, or something like that. I can't remember how it said. They, in the hope that that day of the year, they will cleanse themselves by being washed in that river. For these Jews in our, con- in our text here, uh, if you want to be clean, you must avoid contact with unclean animals and people and wash the outside frequently. And this is a good picture of how religion works. The defilement, if you believe defilement comes from the outside of you, then you believe that if I just obey the rules, I will be clean before God and he will accept and he will bless me. Christianity is so very different. And I want to show you how as we close. Verse 19, Jesus says something pretty profound. He, it says that Mark records the implication of what Jesus said when he says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. Now let me tell you what's going on here and why it matters. You have to remember that many of the food laws came from the Old Testament law given by Moses in order to be right with God. And Moses 
uh, excuse me, Jesus, with incredible authority, simply declares that these foods are no longer unclean. Everyone listening must have been thinking, what in the world is going on? And what authority does he have to do this? Is Jesus changing the law? Is he adding to or, or diminishing the law of God? And we see that Jesus was not doing this to the law because he had incredibly high standards. Matthew five seventeen says, Jesus says, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was declaring that clean laws, all in the Old Testament, all had to do with what he came for. They all had to do with him. And it's this lesson that if the way to be cleansed is not through law-keeping or being a good person, it is through Jesus. If you want to be cleansed and really transformed on the inside, Jesus is saying, it all has to do with me. The question is, how does this happen? How does cleansing come through Jesus? And I just, let me just listen to this. The Bible says that Jesus had always been clean and holy with the Father in the presence of God. But when he was born into the world, think about a few things. He was born through the un, ritually unclean of, uh, act of birth. Mary, his mother, would have had to, um, had to dec- been declared unclean for seven days and gone through 40 days of purification through the birth of Jesus. As Jesus, when he grew up and he began his ministry, he started to do things that were considered very unclean. He, he touched the diseased, like lepers. He ate with sinners, befriended adulterers, associated with prostitutes, and yet he himself, it was said, was without any sin, without any moral defilement himself in his heart. By the end of his life, as he was beaten and there was blood all over him, the Jewish priests couldn't go near him. Why? Because that would have left him defiled. Can you imagine that? They couldn't go near Jesus as he was bleeding because that would have left them defiled. And then on the cross, there lay a dead man, which would also defile. What is going on? The point and the good news is this, is that God so loved the defiled and unclean of the world that he sent his only son to live a holy and clean life that we were supposed to. And on the cross, he absorbed our defilement like a sponge. That on the cross, Jesus became unclean. That on the cross, Jesus took on this list of things that we see in this passage that is in your heart and my heart. He took it on as if he had committed it. Why? Jesus became unclean so that those who believe in him might become clean, washed and clean. Jesus left the presence of God to become defiled and unacceptable so that we who are defiled might be restored into the presence of God, accepted through him. He was punished for our defilement. Hebrews 10 fleshes this out so well. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, do you realize how crazy that is? Do you remember Exodus 19 when the presence of God descended upon Mount Sinai and it was lightning and there was flashing and the holiness of God caused the mountain to tremble? Do you realize what would have happened if they drew near to the presence of God? It says, make sure they don't because 
If you do anything touches it, you will die. We cannot come before God, a holy God, unholy. But here in Hebrews it says, by the blood of Jesus we have confidence to enter the most holy place. By the new and living way he opened up for us through the curtain that is his flesh. Therefore let us draw near with a true or sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Do you have full assurance to come before God this morning? I think some of us lack that assurance. Why? Because we still think that we are accepted by God. We still look to the outside. We look at our performance this week. We look at how we failed and set to determine whether we're worthy to be in the presence of God. Hebrews finishes by saying our hearts were sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. If you're a believer, that is what you have received. If you're not, it's received by faith alone this morning and all your sins are washed away. As the song said earlier, washed as white as snow. Let me give one application of this. Some of you are trying hard um, to be clean but haven't come to the fountain to be washed. And I just encourage you to stop. Stop trying, trusting in external things, whether it be religion or something else, filling your life with the world to try to clean yourself. Um, Jesus was defiled for your sin already. You don't have to clean yourself. Would you, by faith, receive what he did for you in his death and resurrection even now? It's just received by faith alone. And for those who have their faith in Christ, let me explain part of our vision to be transformed by the gospel is that we encourage you and your family that real change comes from comes from environments where you soak in these truths. Okay? So we don't believe you're changed by the environment, but we believe in certain environments, we encourage three environments where you will get this, be soaked in this gospel, this gospel we just we just fleshed out, what Jesus did for you. Take corporate worship. You are not changed by coming to church this morning. There's nothing in this church about this building, about these people that change you. People sit in church their whole lives and they go to hell unclean. What changes you is when you start to worship and you hear the good news in song and you hear good news from the preached word and you receive it by faith, that transforms you. So we encourage you to be involved with corporate worship. Number two, we encourage you to be involved in small group worship. Or life groups is what we call them. If you're not involved in a life group, I'll just say you need the gospel more than on Sundays because you forget this. Later today, you will forget this. Next week, Monday and Tuesday, you will probably, like me, try to trust in our external things and you need a small group of people where you can confess and stop hiding. You need to be involved in a small group worship or, or life groups. Lastly, you need to be involved in family worship. And this is really hard in different circumstances of, 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 of life with small children or different things going on. But <clears throat> again, we need the gospel told in our families. And men, especially you, we are called to step up and be leaders, worship leaders like Jack is to corporate worship. We are to our families. And this is hard. And it might, the first step might just be simply this. It's to just confess to your wife and your kids, I have not done a good job at this. But our family needs the gospel. 
We need to talk about our hearts. We don't talk about our hearts very well, men. But our wives and our children are dealing with heart issues. We are dealing with heart issues. And it is so easy to just work and come home and eat and just relax for a second and do it again. I realize that. I do it. But we need to retell the gospel in our families. And we're responsible to lead our families into worship. A short time of reading the Bible and prayer. Five minutes if you have nothing else. Conclusion, I just say this. Gospel transformation requires two things here in this passage. Understand and confess and stop hiding that your heart is defiled. My heart is defiled. And also they're cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus came to cleanse our hearts of all who will confess that they are defiled. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give eyes to those who are blind today. To those who feel defiled, they would not leave in an unbelieving state. That you would prevent the evil one from stealing the seeds from your word. That Holy Spirit with power, you will cause our lives to be transformed even now with the hope that internally you can cause all things to become new. That we can be washed and made as white as snow as we leave even now by faith alone. Because it's not based on the level of our repentance, but by the definitive work of Jesus upon the cross. And in his precious name, we rejoice and we pray. Amen.